opioids. They're everywhere. There's absolutely no missing them in the headlines. Dateline Albany, New York, from the State Comptroller's Office, November 1st. We see a trend going very much in the wrong direction. These numbers are alarming. These are tragedies that devastate families, impact our communities in countless ways. Those are moms and dads who are no longer with us. Their brothers and sisters, their cousins, their aunts, their uncles, their friends, their neighbors. And any time we talk about overdoses, we remember those we've lost, but we also recommit ourselves to fighting like hell. So bend the curve. Dateline Pittsburgh, 90.5 WESAFF from December 20th. Pennsylvania federal officials see small signs of hope as opioids ravage communities. The New York Times from December 13th. Fentanyl cuts a path of devastation through Milwaukee. United States Attorney's Office, Southern District of Ohio. From November 2nd, Cincinnati man sentenced to 16 years in prison for selling fentanyl to high school student. The Santa Monica Daily Press from September 17th. Fentanyl drives state, regional, and local overdose crisis. KWCH Channel 12 from June 24th. 1,000 Percocet pills seized during drug bust in southeast Wichita. And that's just a small smattering of news from the past few months, covering an ongoing crisis we as Americans have been dealing with for several years now. From 2017, here's an NBC News report from Dayton, Ohio. Mass casualty event. Ohio County now tops U.S. in overdose deaths. Dayton, Ohio. The Wright brothers built their first airplanes here and changed America forever. Today, the city is again at the center of an innovation, a deadly one sweeping across the country. So you live around here? Mm Mm-hmm. You said you have a nickname for this street. Um, Morgue Avenue. Morgue Avenue. It's not Morgan, honey, it's Morgue. Which houses have people died in? What houses have they not died in? Really? Really? Really. Look at all these places, man. I've lived here for about, what, five years? And the last five years, it's unreal. I mean, in 47 minutes, there was already nine deaths. In 47 minutes? In 40, on the street. People are dying from what? Drugs. Here's another from the Washington Post a year later. Over the past decade, millions of prescription painkillers have been shipped to a tiny town in West Virginia, a state where more people have overdosed on opioids and died than in any other state in the nation. According to the House Energy and Commerce Committee, a total of 21 million hydrocodone and oxycodone pills have been delivered to Williamson, West Virginia, a town with fewer than 3,200 residents. That's more than 6,500 pills per person. My God. These headlines and stories are sadly all too easy to find. They're field reports from the front lines of our war on drugs, one that began with President Richard Nixon declaring drug abuse public enemy number one back in 1971. The war on drugs was working on earning its driver's license when this public service announcement first appeared on TV in 1987. Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what doing drugs does? Okay, last time, this is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Unfortunately, this Reagan-era ad and its concurrent Just Say No campaign were, and still are, our better ideas for combating drug use. Obviously, despite their blunt directness, they failed to move the needle, because here we are 35 years later, and the only thing that's changed in the war on drugs is the drugs we've declared to be the enemy of the moment. 
as we approach the first anniversary of the trial of Eric Kay, former Los Angeles Angels Communications Director, who was sentenced to 22 years in federal prison in October after being found guilty for providing Angels pitcher Tyler Skaggs the drugs that led to his death in a Dallas hotel room in 2019. It seems like we're far enough removed from this event and mired deep enough, still, in the opioid crisis to examine why This Is Your Brain on Drugs remains the most memorable weapon in combating addiction, despite its complete and utter ineffectiveness. On this episode of Wrecking the Toy Department, where we won't just stick to sports because we don't have the privilege of doing so, we'll look at how Major League Baseball missed the moment when national crisis and national pastime collided. We'll explore the opportunities those in professional sports have let slip through their fingers over the past four decades through a combination of approaching the issue in a manner that's too simplistic, that gets lost in overpowering trepidation, and yet also somehow shifts the shame and blame almost entirely onto the victims, while also managing to let the public figures we look up to off the hook so we never have to examine the problem too closely. It's no wonder then that it took just a matter of moments to find examples from just this year of opioids making the headlines from everywhere from Los Angeles to Kansas, Wisconsin to Ohio, and to New York. No place is left unscathed. We're inundated with so much information that the tragedies and travesties of this national crisis now seem like everyday occurrences. The only conceivable possibility of a drug scandal and or death rising above this deafening static of headlines as if it involves a professional athlete. And in Tyler Skaggs, a major league pitcher who died on July 1st, 2019, only 12 days shy of his 28th birthday, it seems we had stumbled onto a way to create the kind of national dialogue that this is your brain on drugs and just say no failed to do. Tyler Skaggs started out as the embodiment of the American dream every kid I knew in elementary school had to become a professional athlete, except that Skaggs, sadly, is the cautionary tale of what happens when that dream goes sour and then turns rancid. Eric Kay is somehow the more realistic adult version of that dream, except it's haunted enough to keep you awake at night, flinching at every light, shadow, and noise, both real and imagined. As a high school pitcher in Santa Monica in 2008, Tyler Skaggs pitched so well that he attracted the interest of the Los Angeles Dodgers. In 2012, shortly after his 21st birthday, he won his first major league start, But just five weeks later, Skaggs' fastball had inexplicably dropped from a regular season average velocity of 92 miles per hour to 88. The cause turned out to be the first in a series of injuries that would rob him of multiple years on the mound and start his hellish descent into drug and alcohol abuse. Eric Kay, meanwhile, grew up the son of Rick Kay, a former Los Angeles Rams linebacker who grappled with depression and his own use of painkillers. Like his father, Eric Kay also suffered from depression, and his mother Sandy told ESPN reporter TJ Quinn that Eric tried several forms of medication to treat his condition. But nothing seemed to work for Eric Kay's depression until he discovered oxycodone. It did a ton, his mother said. So did getting an internship with the Angels, where Eric Kay would gradually work his way up to the head of their communications department. However, with the good came the bad. The medication that was doing so much? It's an addictive opioid. The medication combined with depression and the grief that followed his father's death in a 1998 car accident. And within a few years, his mother told ESPN, Eric Kay had developed an opioid addiction. And it was with the angels that Kay's path crossed with Skaggs. 
In Eric Kay's trial last February, his defense team acknowledged that he'd given Skaggs drugs, but also said that Skaggs had given Kay drugs as well, because they both shared the dark secret of being addicts. The details of the 2019 interview Eric Kay's mother did with TJ Quinn, and which Quinn repeated in an ESPN Daily podcast during Kay's trial, were strangely missing from the coverage I read of both Kay's trial and his sentencing. At trial, Kay was found guilty of supplying Skaggs with the oxycodone and fentanyl found in Skaggs' system at the time of his death, which happened when Skaggs choked on his own vomit. Further, according to keycard evidence, Kay was in the room at the time, and in the words of federal prosecutor Aaron Martin, didn't try to save Skaggs, because he either freaked out and tried to save himself, or was also incapacitated, or possibly all of those at once. Add together the missing details of Kay's struggles with depression and drugs with the details from his trial, and it becomes so much easier to paint Kay as a two-dimensional villain than as any kind of complete three-dimensional figure. The same goes for Tyler Skaggs, who walks away the victim of someone predatory rather than someone who went through hell battling an addiction to very dangerous drugs for more than half a decade. That lack of nuance and desire to cover our eyes and plug our ears extended to the way Major League Baseball dealt with the death and revelations to come out of Kay's trial. Matt Harvey, once an all-star pitcher who helped lead the New York Mets to the 2015 World Series, testified with a guarantee of immunity, meaning what he said in court would not be used against him. Harvey said that he had a history of partying, which included using cocaine early in his career. He missed a season after undergoing Tommy John surgery, and later began using oxycodone after joining the Angels and becoming friends with Skaggs. Harvey also said he used Percocet, another opioid, and then dropped the hammer that MLB definitely did not want said out loud. He said it was not uncommon, Harvey's words, for players to take illegal drugs, doing them on the field, dropping them off in the clubhouse, snorting them in clubhouse toilet stalls, all the while hiding their dependency from their fans and he also said he once gave Skaggs Percocet so he could feel quote-unquote loosey-goosey for a start. Though Harvey was immune from punishment by the court, he could not avoid punishment from Major League Baseball, which three months after the trial ended, handed down a 60-game suspension for distributing a prohibited drug of abuse. This was the second time Harvey's employer let him down. The day after Harvey testified, his former manager with the Mets, Terry Collins, spoke with Sal Licata about how he addressed his concerns with Harvey in 2015 and 16. And first, I was very disappointed, but not shocked. You know, we all, there was a lot of speculation when Matt was in New York from guys who were around him that he was on something at, at some of the time when we were in New York. And uh, I heard players talk about it once in a while. I actually had a player in my office one day who was having an issue and and I was talking to him, and he said, well, you know, I'm not doing what Matt Harvey's doing. And I said, well, this isn't about Matt Harvey. It's about you. So I, I, it, was, it was out um, that it, there was issues. But, you know, we did what we thought we had to do to, to try to get him some help. And obviously, you know, Matt's got to be accountable for his actions. Matt was a perfect guy, fit right in. He was a, uh, the, the ideal rookie. He bought, he sat in the corner, didn't say anything. The, the veterans loved him. He went out, he pitched lights out. And in, in 15, you remember, that's when he made the statement that he didn't want to pitch. You know, he wanted to be careful about innings limits because, you know, he didn't want to have any more injuries. And, and yet at the end of the season, he came into my office. He said, I'm done with that. I want to pitch. And you saw the results. He pitched brilliantly. And now 
two years later, you know, he lost 25 or 30 pounds and uh, he wasn't pitching very good. And I called him in and I said, you know, what happened to that guy? I want that guy that pitched in 2015, that 245 pound beast that was out there. And, and he talked about how it was important to him to stay and get in get better shape. And certainly now we look back and uh, sure, certainly there were signs that we should have addressed some things. Collins, now 72, was in his mid 60s when he was the Mets manager. I don't think his attitude is necessarily reflective of Major League Baseballs as a whole, but I will say I think that his interview here with SNY is quite instructive for what he does not say. He does not make mention of what he did or said when it came to directly helping or even speaking with his employee. It may not be callousness. Maybe he couldn't bring himself to face it or had no idea what to say or do himself other than to refer Harvey to the team doctor. It could be his statements in the interview reflected a managed defensiveness. However, I think what's most telling in Collins' statement is how poorly major league clubhouses are patrolled for this sort of thing. You have to look now at the Angels and what are they doing to police that clubhouse? And how did this happen? They were putting pills in, in locker cubby holes. They were passing pills around like there were nothing down there. Like m and right. It's going on in all baseball. That's Los Angeles Times sports columnist Bill Plaschke with midday hosts Fred Rogan and Rodney Pete on AM570 LA Sports. Why don't we police clubhouses? Is MLB afraid of what it might find? Is the players' union afraid of what might be found? Or the possible invasion of privacy or stigma that might be attached? Does it not go with the pictures or images of what we imagine drug addicts look like? Do we delude ourselves into thinking that it's all fun games? and that those things only happen to someone else. Are we afraid to find out, once and for all, beyond suspension of all disbelief, that there's evidence that sports culture isn't what we think it is or what we've created it to be? Some planet of otherworldly superheroes like the ones we found in comic books and cartoons as kids? Well, it's not, and never has been. Former Dallas Cowboys wide receiver Peter Gant, after his NFL career ended, wrote the novel North Dallas 40 back in 1973 the first book to specifically examine the league's hypocrisy regarding drug use. Gant's novel, adapted into a 1979 movie of the same name starring Nick Nolte and Mac Davis as North Dallas wide receiver and quarterback. In this scene, they're alone in the locker room raiding the team trainer's quote-unquote medicine cabinet for a breakfast of pills washed down with beer. Okay, we're going to have some drugs to drink. Mind if I do? Calmazine. Would you like cooking? Does a shark see? Come on, get some of this. One for me. Breakfast, breakfast with champions there. Nectar uh, of the gods. Yes. In other scenes from this film, it's implied that pain pills are laid out around the clubhouse like bowls of candy for the players to mix and match to their heart's content. One unnamed NFL veteran told the Washington Post in a 1979 interview how this all-too-true sequence played itself out on field. Quote, what you've got to be concerned about is an amphetamine gap between you and the opposition. If their pupils are dilated and they're jabbering away in paragraphs, fidgeting and ranting and licking their lips, those are pretty good clues there's an amphetamine gap. It's disconcerting to look across the line and see that, unquote. That very same article states that the league's party line, unsurprisingly and untruthfully, is there's no substantial drug abuse problem in football. Likewise, MLB clubhouses were and are still overrun with pills. Their descriptions and contents evolving over the decades, from greenies to dexedrine 
various caffeine sources, including coffee and Red Bull, but also amphetamines, ephedrine, and quite publicly, back in 1985, cocaine. And just as they did in 2022, MLB officials, as described in the HBO show Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel, would look for scapegoats and any other conceivable exit ramp to avoid confronting an endemic problem head-on. Set up by his best friend, Schiffman was taken in by the FBI in May of 1985. His arrest, along with five other local dealers, triggered a national drama as baseball's dirty little secret became a public scandal. During the ensuing trials, baseball fans all over the country heard graphic testimony from a virtual all-star team of players. Dave Parker, Lonnie Smith, and Keith Hernandez, among others, were given immunity from prosecution. In return, they spoke openly in court about not only using cocaine themselves, but named who they did it with and where they got it from. Not a one would even miss a single game as punishment. In fact, in his first game back after testifying, Keith Hernandez returned to New York and was given a standing ovation. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, the guy goes in front of a grand jury and rats people out and they give him a standing ovation? I, I don't understand that. The players received immunity for their testimony. While the dealers spent years in prison, the players went straight back to work. MLB Commissioner Peter Ubroth agreed to lift what had been one-year suspensions for players who, quote, in some fashion facilitated the distribution of drugs and baseball, unquote, in exchange for the players contributing 10% of their salaries that year to programs to combat drug abuse, to do 200 hours of community service, and to submit to drug tests for the remainder of their careers. Dale Schiffman, the former freelance photographer and cocaine provider for some Pittsburgh Pirates players in the early 1980s, told HBO Real Sports that he got cocaine for four or five members of those teams and estimated that, out of a roster of 25 players, 15 to 17 were using at the time. That can't be limited to just one team. After all, as seven-time All-Star and 1978 NL MVP Dave Parker told Gumbel, It was so prevalent out in society that, you know, we had to be doing it too. And it wasn't as though cocaine didn't become a problem for some players. It was happening to less famous cocaine users every day back in the 1980s, something Parker found out firsthand in the middle of the night when his dealer called asking for help dealing with a Pirates teammate. I can recall receiving a phone call telling me to tell Dale Bear to go home. You know, he was going through his flour uh, cans and his... Uh, canisters that he kept uh, some of his stuff in, and uh, it was like about four or five in the morning, and I got him on the phone, and I told him, I said, hey, you know, we got to play tomorrow. Why don't you go home? How concerned were you that their addiction by then at that time would bring attention to the rest of you? I was very concerned. Drugs, not just cocaine, but other narcotics as well, were a problem in the United States back in the 1980s. However, at the same time, they were celebrated in popular American culture. The movies Scarface, Wall Street, Caddyshack, the hard rock bands Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue. Actor Rob Lowe saying publicly that cocaine was prevalent on movie sets. And while cocaine is no longer the ubiquitous it drug it was in the 1980s, that doesn't change the fact that drugs are in the 2020s, just as they were in the 1980s and every decade before and since, and will be on until the end of time, central not just to the culture of American sport, or the United States even, but to the very existence of all humankind. Every single person on this planet, whether or not they themselves have used drugs,
They've had a meaningful experience with drugs. They've seen someone drink a cup of coffee to wake up and start the day, someone smoking a cigarette to try to relax, or having a glass of wine to unwind at the end of the day. Now, dial up the pressure some. Put millions of dollars on the line for Major League Baseball players to train, practice, and get themselves ready to play 162 games over the course of 180 or so days, mainly at night, and flying to a new city at least once a week, sometimes twice. If thinking about that is tiring, imagine doing it. And then take a listen to Chicago's 670 The Score afternoon hosts, Danny Parkins and Matt Spiegel, describe what MLB players will publicly attest to doing to get themselves ready to play. Bronson Arroyo, who pitched for the 2004 World Series champion Boston Red Sox, told them his reaction to some of the things he'd seen teammates do over the course of his career. Relief pitchers would tell me about like taking shots of Red Bull in the in the bullpen. All right, fine, Red Bull, whatever. It's just a, a little bit of a caffeine jolt. But like yeah. that's what they're willing to admit publicly that they're doing to to get up to go into the game. Imagine Absolutely. what they're actually doing. You know, guys that I played with, they were usually looking for energy for the most part, right? We talked about the old greenies, which was a mild form of speed. And you talk about, I mean, even a cup of coffee. I mean, you guys know how it is. I mean, if you know somebody who drinks coffee every day, you guys probably have coffee. You know, there's something that feels disrupted in your life if you don't have that routine. And what winds up happening is, is people just, you know, you put something in your system. And if you, if you go out there and pitch on a little bit of a painkiller because your elbow's bothering you and you have a good outing and the pain isn't there, there's something psychological that could also be a placebo that makes you believe that you actually are pitching better on that substance now. And sometimes you start doing that every fifth day. And next thing you know, you've been doing that for three or four years and you don't realize how dependent you are on that. I have definitely played with guys you know, that I don't, I really want to name. They have retired from the game not long ago that were my contemporaries that were, you know, coming out of the bullpen and taking, you know, five and six Percocets just to get out there on the mound every single night, you know, and then running the streets hard and doing cocaine at night. And it, it's not survivable over the long haul. There's just really no way to stop it because if, if you talk to some of these guys about the way they're living their life, for the most part, they feel like it's something that is actually making them a better athlete, not knowing that they're just slowly kind of decaying on the, on the underside. Maybe those players Arroyo's talking about don't realize they're decaying, or maybe they're in denial, out of the human necessity to avoid the subject, convince themselves, quote, it can't happen to me. I have everything under control. Sometimes out of fear for ourselves, sometimes for other reasons, we ignore the problem or make judgments against the people for whom drugs have become a problem. And sometimes, for whatever the reason, we don't see the problem until circumstances have become absolutely dire. To get an idea of how frightening, scary, and dangerous a situation that could have become, and eventually did become, listen to Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Favre speaking on the March 23, 2021 edition of the Bowling with Favre podcast, describe how he developed and eventually broke his addiction to painkillers. I don't know if it was framed enough to warrant getting pain pills, but I remembered the effect that I had and I liked it. And I thought, what the heck, you know, why not? So that happened two or three times during the course of that season. Then it was, I was taking two every day and I could get away with getting two a day because it was two. And maybe the third day I would ask another player to get two pills. So I just didn't ask the same person. And you start learning to manipulate the system. Yeah. And you become very good at it. And, and to a point where I was basically taking, in two days, a month prescription, which is crazy. It, it became constant at the end of 94 season to where when I went home, 
I was taking the pills. And after, usually after a month, two became three. Three became four. It would only last for four weeks, and then I had to go up. And so during the, the 95 season, I had a seizure the night before a game, all-out seizure. So I said, I, okay, I'll stop taking them. But I, I continued to take them to a point where at the end of the 95 season, I had ankle surgery and had another seizure in the hospital. That scared me, really. I had to tell everyone what was going on, but really, I knew I had to stop. And I went to rehab in Topeka, Kansas, the Menninger Clinic, and I was there for 75 days. I thought I had it all figured out. When I got out, I was fit. This was 96 season. And they said, okay, if you need pain pills, we got a non-addictive pain pill that you can take. It's called Ultram. Let me tell you, if you take 20 of them, it will work. I was taking a pain pill for effect. Eventually, I took 20, and I got a buzz. And so I fell right back into that cycle again. So at the end of the season, I had eight pills in my possession. Eight pills would not do what I needed it to do. It would give me zero buzz. And I was home in Mississippi, and I was as low as I possibly could be. Even though I'd won the Super Bowl, I said, it's one of two things. I die or I flush these pills down the toilet. And I contemplated, I sat by the toilet for two hours. And eventually I dumped the pills in the toilet, flushed them. And I, I, could, I almost wanted to kill myself because of doing that. That I could not believe that I had actually done that. And I was so mad at myself because now what was I going to do? I shook with cold sweats, hot sweats. Every night at nine o'clock, I just shook because every night at nine o'clock was exactly the time I took them. During the time Favre is describing, 1994 through 97, he was named league MVP three times and led the Green Bay Packers to two Super Bowls, including their victory in 1996 over the New England Patriots. Those accomplishments in the haze of painkillers are absolutely amazing. At the depths of his addiction, Favre played the best football of his career putting on performances that would eventually cement his status as a first ballot Hall of Famer. And it's a fair argument as to whether or not that's more astounding than the fact that Favre is still here to speak about the experience more than a quarter century later. Addiction is a demon, and one need not look far in any direction to find someone who's dealt with substance abuse, be it alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, opioids. If you can name the drug someone you know probably has had, or is having a problem with it. And the reasons are countless. Anxiety, depression, feelings of inadequacy, psychic pain, mental pain, even physical pain. And all those were amplified to an exponential level by the COVID pandemic. Plus, nobody is immune to the possibility of tipping into dependency, especially when you discover how surprisingly simple, even conceivably pleasant, a descent it could be as a certain drug becomes a possibly toxic cocktail when mixed with one's shaky physical, mental, or emotional well-being. And the part that I can't stop thinking about is the opiates and how it feels, how you can fool yourself that it's making you better because there's an anxiety reduction too. So I thought it was really telling when he says like a pitcher has a little bit of a hurt elbow and throws, you know, feeling on a Percocet or whatever. And he has a good game, and then he gets convinced that that's what he needs. And you care about the pain less. You worry about it less. That's why that stuff 
is is so terrifying and so insidious and gets and gets deep within you because it like it mixes with your mental and emotional well-being and it sometimes feels pretty good and you think you're better on it and you're probably not but you sure think you are and that's and that's what matters that is truly some unstable psychological ground to be standing on if you're thinking it's helping you when it's not and if you think it's helping as we've heard again and again how can it possibly be a problem that's an enormous obstacle with a potentially combustible combination of shame fear embarrassment denial trepidation and judgment whether real or imagined to crack through to reach someone on the other side Would it not be helpful to all of us if we could have these discussions more directly and humanely without feeling the need to punish someone to avoid going into a shame spiral and to draw inspiration from someone publicly fighting the battle as it happens and hopefully winning it rather than having it told with the memory gaps filled in by time and subconscious revisionist history years or decades later? In 2021 in the U.S. alone, there were more than 100,000 overdose deaths, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and more than 75,000 were attributed to opioids, a 34% jump from 2020. That means that probably millions of us are or have fought this battle privately at some point in our lives. These stories about Tyler Skaggs, Eric Kay, Matt Harvey, Brett Favre, they could be and have been about people in all walks of life, bankers, factory workers, band members, lawyers, doctors, radio station employees. It could be anyone. To be a functional opiates user. Yeah. You know, perhaps we've run into these kind of people in your life or in your family or whatever. Basically everybody listening has. Yeah, at, at this point. And the insidious... Whether you know it or not, you, you ha- it's just so prevalent. There's so many of them out there. I feel very fortunate that I never messed around with it, with with pain pills or anything like that. I, I when I had my spinal fusion surgery and I was prescribed it, uh, pain, pain pills, and you know, then it was obviously for a very necessary reason. Mm-hmm. Like I used them, they worked, but I remember like having a bunch left over. Like it was totally over prescribed yeah. what I needed, and I was a 15, 16 year old kid at the time. But just like the number of refills, you know what I mean? I mean. <sighs> dozens and dozens and dozens of extra pills that i never needed and it was like well what the hell do i i I just i never did anything there were nights really in the 90s and also the early aughts there were times when i would have a gig on a saturday night right playing music from 8 to 11 or something like that and then i would do a radio show from 4 a.m to 8 a.m okay on sporting news radio and that that was my shift and it was a, you know, it was a, I'm doing national radio. It's great. So what am I going to do? Go to bed? No. And there were some times when my feet hurt because I was a big guy and I was dancing around. There were a couple nights where I took a painkiller to deal with the pain of the feet towards the end of a gig. And I'd be like, oh man, now I can, now I can dance in front and do what I need to do. And then by the time I'm show prepping and the radio show starts, I'm obviously still feeling the effects of that. Yeah, of course. And and I realized, oh, this is why Rush Limbaugh got hooked. Because, boy, I cared less about my nerves of doing a national radio show at four in the morning when I was still feeling the effects of an opiate. And I realized, oh, man, this is freaking dangerous. You could see yourself thinking. They work. Yeah. And and you, you think you're better. 
You think you're better. It's, I mean, it happens to musicians all the time. It has, it has happened to radio hosts, obviously. It could have happened to me, and I'm, I'm very lucky that I did not go down that path because I know people that did. I will say that I produced a show on Sporting News Radio for several months in 2002. It aired from 4 to 8 a.m. on weekend mornings. It's completely believable to think Matt Spiegel did at least one of those shows I produced, having come to the radio studio right off playing a gig earlier that night. I worked overnights for months, arriving at the office between 10.30 and 11.30 at night, and leaving sometime between 6 and 8 in the morning. I once had a shift that ran from midnight to noon, and this was a part-time job, so I had to do something else to earn more money. Try keeping those hours, especially working both days and overnights at the same time. And the radio industry does share this with professional sports. There aren't a lot of jobs available, especially if you want to be on air. So if you get your chance, you grab it, no matter what or when it is, and you do anything and everything you need to do to take advantage of whatever shot you get. If you don't think drugs of some sort could or would be involved, I don't know what to tell you. Speaking for myself, I learned every trick in the book up to and including massive amounts of caffeine. I'd pace the studio, go out in the cold, go to the bathroom during commercial breaks and run freezing water over the veins on my wrists all in the name of staying awake enough to do my job. I was in my 20s in good shape, but it was all I could do to try to catch up with the schedule I had. There was one night I remember working a midnight to 8 a.m. shift, and I was struggling. It was around 6.30, and I was so close to finishing the show that I could also barely keep my eyes open. And as I blinked and fidgeted in the producer's chair trying to stay awake, I hit a button on the control board and hung up on our guest, while he was in mid-sentence. We called back, got him back on the air, and the interview continued. I didn't get a talking to, it was fine, but I felt terrible about my mistake. Looking back, if someone had, on the heels of that morning, offered me a pill and a guarantee that I'd never again be in such a physical and mental state to make such an error, I might have, given my youth and experience with drugs and drive to make a mark and move up the network, accepted it and taken it. And who knows how that would have turned out. I've also sometimes imagined what it would have been like had something happened that would have put me out of work, losing my voice or my hearing, even partially. That's how I imagine it must have been like for Tyler Skaggs as he watched his major league dream slip away. And then I consider how all the substances that took his career and then life and could do so to any one of us, and how those substances, drugs of all makes and models, have been mainlined into society. Oh my gosh. Okay, we have to get this one. This is filtered through uncut volcano diamonds. That's just a fancy way of saying strained through rocks. <gasps> okay, how about this one? It's made only from potatoes that look like famous people's faces. Maybe there's one of you. Our friendship is over. What's this one's claim to fame? It's Smirnoff. It's just really good vodka. Well, done and done. Anyone with high cholesterol may be at increased risk of heart attack. Diet and exercise weren't enough for me. I stopped kidding myself. I've been eating healthier, exercising more, and now I'm also taking Lipitor. Weekends were made for Michelob. Weekends were made for special friends. It's the time to have that smooth and mellow beer. We can hate or love the people who make these products 
and the advertisements for them as much or as little as we want. But at the same time, we have to realize our very human predilection for creating, using, and possibly abusing these drugs, and many more like them, has been hardwired over eons into our very DNA. And so, we should try to do all we can to forgive ourselves and each other, and realize that among other possible solutions, we can use sports to show that while people are horribly flawed, they are, like Matt Spiegel, Matt Harvey, even Brett Favre, or Eric Kay, worthy of second chances and the opportunity to make the most of them, regardless of how the circumstances necessitating a second chance unfolded. This episode of Wrecking the Toy Department was written, voiced, edited, and produced by me, Jake Williams. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend and leave a review and rating on iTunes. Thank you for listening.